You're listening to Fresh Ideas for Teaching. Hi, everyone. This is Walter. The Fresh Ideas for Teaching podcast is presented by Savvis Learning Company. Welcome to our Moving Learning Forward series, where we'll be exploring the latest trends in the world of education and talking to experts who can offer the latest insights on personalized learning, student engagement, and maximizing your educational technology. In today's episode, we'll be exploring the topic of student engagement. I'm here with my colleague, Karen Miller, National Literacy Specialist at Savvis Learning and former elementary and secondary teacher. Karen, who do we have as our special guest today? Well, thanks, Walter. We're honored to have Kelly Gallagher with us today. Since 1985, Kelly Gallagher has devoted himself to the teaching of reading, writing, listening, and speaking. First and foremost, at a high school ELA teacher in Anaheim, California, and also as an author who works with educators around the world. In 2005, Kelly received the Award for Classroom Excellence from the California Association of Teachers of English, the state's highest honored for English teachers. Today, he's considered one of the leading voices in literacy education. Kelly, thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks so much for having me. Well, it's great to be here with you. With both of us being former classroom teachers, we've always known that keeping students engaged in learning is probably one of the most important and difficult tasks that a teacher faces. But I think in the past few years, we've seen a major uptick in students being more distracted, disengaged, and even avoiding work. Today, we wanna talk about why students aren't engaged, the implication, the impact that has on students, and of course, teachers. And what sort of things can we do to get and keep students engaged in learning? Kelly, from your experience in the classroom and the research you've done lately, what are your thoughts on why students are struggling to stay engaged? Well, this, you know, this engagement issue uh, was, was prevalent uh, before the pandemic, uh, and it was intensified by the pandemic. I think uh, a lot of the teachers that I talked to uh, have indicated to me that kids actually kind of went a year without actual you know, deep reading and without, without writing much a year or longer. Uh, my argument is that that was the case long before the pandemic. Uh, the kids have been fake reading for a very long time, uh, and kids have been sort of avoiding writing, uh, meaningful writing, for a long time. Um, so now, as we're recording this, we're heading into a brand new school year. You know, teachers are faced with kids who have kind of adopted this, you know, stance of compliance, which is a very different stance than engagement. You know, we. They, they see reading and writing as things to do in school to kind of progress from one grade or, you know, to another. Um, and my work is really kind of, kind of zooms in on the idea that we want kids to read and write because we like to read and write and we want kids to be lifelong readers and lifelong writers. And that's truly what we want. We want them to be lifelong. We want them to love it. We want them to engage with it. We want them to learn from it. Thinking about implications of students being disengaged in reading and writing in the classroom, one would assume there would also be implications outside of the classroom. Well, a lot of that, if you take the reading side of things, you know, um, I think it's problematic. And I wrote about this years ago in a book called Read Aside, that one recipe for killing young readers is, you know, the teacher's the one who always selects everything that they read. Uh, and the kids are always greeted at the end of each chapter uh, with way too many questions, way too many things to do. 
Uh, and what happens is that books get chopped up into so many pieces that it ceases to become a book and becomes more of a worksheet. Um, so on the reading side, one of the arguments that I've been making, and I've been making in the last two books with my co-author, Penny Kittle, uh, is that the reading diet in schools is really, really out of balance. That we believe, if you think about what Nancy Atwell said, for example, she said there's three kinds of reading in the world. There's challenge books, just right books, and vacation books. And I believe that kids should be reading all three. And they should be reading all three in school, uh, which means that there's different kinds of reading going on. There's whole class core work reading. There's book club reading where kids have partial choice on which, which book they want to select uh, and which um, little club they want to sit in. Uh, and then there's independent reading, which I think often gets a bad rap in American education there's sort of this idea that's prevalent that the higher you climb K-12, that independent reading is kind of a waste of class time. It's kind of a waste. It's not as academic uh, as other kinds of reading. Well, to that, I would say two things. Number one, I'm absolutely convinced that students aren't really reading the classroom novels. I've, I've surveyed my own students year after year. I've surveyed other teachers year after year. Uh, and no book is rigorous if you don't open it and don't read it. Um, Penny and I make the argument in Four Essential Studies, our latest book, that actually independent reading is rigorous. Um, and one of the problems that kids are having today in trans transitioning from K-12 to the university is when they get to the university, all reading is independent reading. So if they've been fake reading, if, if reading has only become an extraction exercise for them where they just go find answers and plug and play, all that thinking's already been done online. Uh, and then, of course, they transition into the university. And, and this is why we have such a high dropout at the university is because on the reading side, all the reading is independent. On the writing side, universities are not valuing um, formulaic writing. And so we want to uh, position kids to have more choice. And, and that I think is the first step in creating more ownership of the reading and writing. And that student choice and voice is so important in our classroom to increase that engagement. What does it look like? You talked about independent reading, but what is that student voice, that student choice? What are other ways it might look? Well, let's take writing, for example. Um, I'm, I've always began the year with, even in 12th grade, with narrative writing, because it is the writing that I think actually will motivate um, students who haven't really been writing in a long time. Um, you have stories to tell. Each student has a story to tell that only he or she can tell. And I want to carve out a place in school for them to share these stories. This also gets to another bias in American schools is that the higher kids climb K-12, the less important narrative writing becomes. Um, I just disagree with that. I think it's actually harder to write a really rich narrative than it is to write uh, you know, an essay that, that analyzes the theme in, in Lord of the Flies. So uh, we begin, I begin the year by having kids write a narrative essay, which automatically opens up 
a whole world of choice. It's their stories that I want them to tell. Um, and so this is, you know, the first goal, I think, for young riders is that the teacher needs to reestablish riding momentum and riding identity. Kids don't see themselves as riders. And they haven't been flexing that fluency muscle. And the same thing is true with young readers. We begin the year with independent reading because we want kids to reestablish reading identity and, and reading momentum. You know, I think how powerful that is. I talk to so many teachers across the country and they start letting go of that narrative piece. They get the pressure of the state assessment, the pressure of the standards. They forget about how important that narr narrative is for students to develop their voice, um, their power, be able to show their opinions. I would say two things about that come to mind when you when you frame it that way is number one is that if you teach kids how to write a really good narrative, they're going to learn skills like sensory detail. They're going to learn voice. They're going to learn how to use dialogue. Those skills that they learn in creating a really rich narrative are not genre specific skills. You're going to use voice in an argument unit. You're going to use voice and in information and inform and explain unit that those are, again, are not skills that are only apply to narrative, but we got to get kids up writing. We got to get words on the page. And if we teach them those elements, uh, we use mentor text, we model, uh, we don't assign writing. We model writing. We teach writing. Assigning writing is really easy. Teaching writing is really hard. So we do all those steps to get kids up and going. Uh, and then when they get later in the year, uh, they will ha have a number of skills under their belt that they can use in any discourse. That makes a lot of sense. A lot of sense because it's not, it, it, you're developing the skills along the way to be able to apply to any modality, any genre. Right. And it, it begins with student interest, right? Um, I remember um, my last year teaching, um, I sat next to a young uh, 10th grader who asked me to help her with her paper, uh, at her draft. And uh, as I looked over her shoulder and started reading her draft, I realized uh, that the piece that she was writing was a true story of a day she came home from school and her mother was missing. Her mother turns out got deported and now she's 15. She's the oldest of four or five kids. Mm -hmm. She's now the mother figure. Um, and you know, that's a story that only Angie could tell it. it it's it's and, and because she's invested in that story, she's going to work on it meaningfully. I would also say that when a student when students begin with narratives and they open up and share things like that, like when I sit next to Angie um, and she actually shares that personal of a story with me, there's something that happens between the two of us is, that is much deeper and much richer than simply as your calm is in the right place. The second point I wanted to make, and I forgot to come back to it, about the teaching of narrative is under the umbrella of narrative, I, I would also suggest that narrative can mean nonfiction or fiction. And I think kids are not writing enough fiction in school, even up into 12th grade. I think 
there's a loss of creativity when we take that out of the curriculum. And so um, under that umbrella, Penny and I talk about this a lot in 180 days, you know, when we planned a year of instruction together, how do we nudge them into more creative kinds of writing, which, which again, are not seen as academic by some people, but we just disagree. We think the cultivation of creativity is extraordinarily important. I think kids are natural storytellers and we have to tap that they have stories to tell. There are Angie's all across the country Mm. who have different stories, but who have something inside of them that needs to come out. And I think that we look at sometimes in our classrooms and we're so focused sometimes on that five paragraph essay or trying to get them to edit their work that we miss that crucial step that comes way before that. And that is empowering student voice. Absolutely. I mean, if you ask a kid to write a five paragraph essay, you've already stripped that writer of much of the decision-making, much of the wrestling that must go into creating uh, an interesting essay. Um, One of the things that Penny and I discovered when we looked around the country was that many universities will not accept a formulaic paper. Uh, They actually often don't have rubrics. Um, There is no graphic organizer. And so kids who come to the university who haven't had practice making those decisions and wrestling with those decisions, uh, you know, form and structure, should I start the essay with this? Should I start it with that? Uh, should, you know, should I move this here? Should I move that there? Uh, rather than just straight sequential writing, which is what a lot of immature writers do, you know, form and organization is very important. You think about style, you have to ask yourself who's the audience and, and what's the purpose of the piece. Uh, something you write to your grandmother is going to sound very different than a college admission essay. So, recognizing audience and purpose, again, factors into the decision-making that young writers have to make. There's a ton of decisions that we all make. And so I work very hard in the classroom and I'm currently coaching uh, in the Anaheim Union High School District and and having kids, you know, I think there's a sort of unhealthy codependence on young writers and their English teachers. And English teachers really, really, really have the best intentions. They want to help kids But I think sometimes when we help them too much, we're not helping them at all in the long run. That kids, I think their needs, especially K-12, there needs to be space for experimentation. There needs to be space for failure. There needs to be space for kids to do a lot of writing that the teacher will never see, right? Because if I only write to a teacher and everything I write is graded, then the writing becomes performative. And I'm, I'm much less likely to take risks in that writing. Uh, Langer and Appleby did a national study where they found this to be true 35 years ago. And then they did the same study again, five years ago, and they found the exact same thing. So we want to cultivate conditions in which writers are encouraged to take risks and to, you know, write crummy stuff because you have to write a lot of bad writing before good writing will eventually emerge. No, isn't that true? Isn't that true? I think as teachers, we've all experienced that ourselves, getting students to actually be able to engage in the type of writing that isn't so great Mm -hmm. to be able to recognize when it is great. Mm -hmm. Well, I know we were talking about student engagement and we just focused a lot on writing, which is such a way 
to empower students within that classroom. Mm. And Kelly, I want to thank you for your time today. But before we go, can you tell us one strategy that a teacher listening today can use in the classroom tomorrow to get their kids excited about reading? I don't know if it's a strategy, but I would suggest that reading, you know, you you can stand in front of your kids and you can tell them this is how swimmers swim. But if there's no water in the pool, it's not going to happen. And so I, I spent much of my career building a classroom library. I think it is a career long pursuit. I never figured out how to stem the loss of books. So if anybody listening to this has figured that out, please contact me because you're <laughs> going to make a lot of money. Uh, and I always figured if a kid took a book and didn't re return it, that the kid needed the book more than I did. So I, I really wasn't upset about that. But, and I've said this in many, many workshops around the country, you know, especially I'm thinking now as we're recording this in Anaheim, where I taught 35 years, it's their first week of school and they just mm -hmm. had their they just had their, you know, teacher only days. And I can't tell you, and this isn't an Anaheim thing, but I can't tell you how many times I've sat in faculty meetings where we talk about everything under the roof, except whether kids have interesting books to read or wow. not. And so what I want to suggest is that the strategy of a department is looking at various funding sources, looking at how we spend money, um, and, and I think, you know, building classroom libraries, three things that ha have to happen for a kid to be a reader. He has to have a good book. He has to have time to read it and he has to have a place to read it. And for many of my students, the only place where those three factors intersect is at school mm -hmm. and it starts with a good book. And so, um, uh, I would suggest trying to surround kids with books they want to read. Uh, and, and I have surveyed readers for years and years and years, you know, and I asked 12th graders, when was the last time you read a book on your own? And I'm, I'm, I'm here to say 90% of the seniors that I've interviewed year after year have admitted to me that they have fake read their way to the 12th grade. So when you talk to a classroom of 12th graders, many of them who haven't read a book in three, four or five, six, seven years to say, Hey, great. Come on in. Let's start with Hamlet. Uh, it seems to me an inappropriate way to try to motivate young readers. Let's find out what they want to read. Let's establish that reading momentum and reading identity. Let's begin with some independent reading and get them up and running. I would also say one last thing about independent reading is that NCTE has, has published a position statement on the value of independent reading. So if you just Google the phrase NCTE position paper, on independent reading, you will see the research that supports that for anybody who might question that practice in your class. We have to, if, if volume becomes the number one goal, we have to get them up and reading. And that starts with access to good books, which is, by the way, one of my thumbprints or fingerprints in, in the My Perspective program is this idea that kids in that program have, have digital access to all kinds of books in there that could be used either for independent reading or could be used as book club uh, possibilities. And so that is one of many, many uh, influences that I've had on that program. I think nothing is nothing is more enlightening and powerful than having a student choose mm -hmm. their own text mm -hmm. and have that light bulb moment go off and 
have a conversation about the experiences that they've brought to the text and what they've walked away with. Well, you know, Kelly, we could talk forever. Thank you so much for giving our listeners some valuable insights and strategies to really increase engagement in their classroom. Well, thank you, Karen. It was my pleasure speaking with you today. Walter, back to you. That's all the time we have for today. Many thanks to both Karen Miller and Kelly Gallagher for joining us today. Be sure to subscribe to the Fresh Ideas for Teaching podcast. Until next time. This Moving Learning Forward series is presented by Savvis Learning Company, a next-generation learning company providing award-winning solutions for grades pre-K through 12. Visit savvis.com today to request pre-K through 12 curriculum samples for your school or district. And you can keep the conversation going by following us on social media at Savvis Learning with hashtag Moving Learning Forward.